and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 382 and part two of my conversation with composer, educator, percussionist, performer, and visiting professor of music theory at Grand Valley State University in Michigan, Olivia Kiefer. We'll check back in with her shortly. First, a report from this past weekend, which is a success. As mentioned last week, I was able to premiere my new piece for solo horn and marimba, which we changed the name to. I had it originally listed as Hit Street Garage, which is a local parking deck on the campus of Mizzou, but the person I wrote the piece for, Amanda Collins, suggested a few hours before that we call it Cascade. And I have to say, I like that title better. Hopefully, I will have a recording available soon, and you'll get a chance to perform it with your favorite horn player. Stay tuned. With that, we get back to our conversation with Olivia Kiefer. Last week on part one, which I hope you've heard, we chatted about Olivia's current job at GVSU, her work on the PAS Diversity Alliance, growing up in Wisconsin, and her time as an undergrad percussion major at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. This week in part two, we'll hear more about her path, including her master's degree at Georgia State, and years freelancing in the Atlanta area, including her time with the chamber group Chicks with Sticks, her career switch over to composition, which led to her getting her master's at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and her doctorate at the University of Miami in Florida, along with our usual close to the show. One more note before we get started, while this is an audio-only podcast, there's a stretch of about five to seven minutes or so where Olivia will do demonstrations of all of the toy pianos she has in her collection. It's really fascinating to hear all of the differences on an instrument that I can at least say I know very little about, but learned a ton. So I hope you enjoy all of that and the rest. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on January 5th, 2024, and it begins right now. What happens after undergrad? Let's see. So, yeah, I finished all my music stuff, but I still had, like, nine credits of whatever academic stuff. So, like, CCM back then was, like, a true conservatory model. And it was on a trimester system. Mm. Like, regular school year, I think. So maybe it was quarters because there was probably a summer quarter. So it was, like, ten weeks. And you had to take X amount. So you had to take, like, music stuff. And then there were some music electives, of course. But then there was, um, you just had to take X amount of credits and literally anything else. I didn't have any requirement. I didn't have to take math. I didn't have to take any sort of like, well, there was like a English 101 sort of class that people had to take, but I, I got out of that because I took the AP English test. Um, so I didn't have to do that. I tested out of that. But um, anyway, the point is I had to finish some of my academic credits. So I actually finished in like August 2004. And at that point I had already, um, during that year that I, I didn't really think of myself in school. So like 2003, 2004 year. I was like teaching drum lessons. I was still in Cincinnati and I was like teaching drum lessons and delivering pizza. And, um, I was a part of this actually really wonderful church and, and, um, uh, and then, and I, and I was so burned out. I was like, I am never going back to school again. Yeah. But I was pretty aimless in life. I wasn't sure I was kind of floating. I didn't know what was next. All of a sudden I found this email that I had missed. 
And it was like, I, I found it like three months later, but it was from Stuart Gerber who went to CCM. So I knew Stu because he was there like maybe my first two years. He was like finishing his doctorate and stuff. And he had sent me an email and he said, oh, I want to start, you know, I want to get some master's students here at Georgia State University. That's where he had been teaching for like two years. And I was like, oh. And he said, listen, you come audition, I'm sure I can get you a full ride. It would just be great to, if you're interested, you know. And I was like, oh, there's my like, I'm done floating. I want to do this. I want to go, you know, hey, why not? So I put some excerpts together, you know, it was all pretty fast and, and um, I drove down and it was such a, the whole thing about going down to Atlanta was such a magical experience because here in Cincinnati, it was, it was March and it was like sleeting and like, just like gross. And then it's just 75 South all the way down to Atlanta. Yeah. And, and it was just nicer and nicer. And by the, and I was like 70 and sunny while I was there and, uh, you know, and Stu really uh, honeymooned me while I was doing the <laughs> Audition, um, which is great. I mean, yeah. So, and even like looking through neighborhoods or like maybe where I would want to live and stuff like that. I mean, really, really lovely. Um, but yeah, I, it was such Georgia State was such a different um, environment. Like CCM, very highbrow, very and huge, right? Huge music school. Georgia State was maybe like, and it had undergraduate and grad students. The music department was maybe like five hundred students. And everybody was friendly and all the faculty were like out playing gigs and doing cool stuff and like very like in the city doing stuff. And it was a very vibrant, you know, city with, with a lot of things going on and much bigger than Cincinnati, you know. So I really, when I auditioned, uh, I just felt like what I was, that what I should do, you know. So I started my master's degree in um, at Georgia State University in Atlanta in the fall of 2004. Toward the end of that, yeah, I had another back surgery toward the end of that. So I actually I had to take a like a semester off. And then so I finished in the fall to, or in um, August of 2006. And so, yeah, at my time at Georgia State, I mean, I was working with Stuart Gerber, who's like amazing, you know, and he gave me all sort of performing opportunities. And then um, almost right away, I joined the Chicks with Sticks percussion group that is made up of um, women who were like freelancers around town. So Karen Hunt, Courtney McDonald. Lisa Morris, and at that time there were five of us, so Lisa um, Gillespie. And and they were all people who had studied with Jack Bell at Georgia State back in the day, or most of them. So immediately I was playing in this awesome quintet of women percussionists, which was so fun. And we played like more like, not show tunes, but a little more lighthearted music, you know. Um, and that was that was a blast. Oh, that was such a ball. And so I got to play around town. I you know I played with the Ludwig Symphony. But anyway, yeah. So I, I did my master's degree in Atlanta, and then um, I ended up living there until I decided to go back to school in 2017. So I was there 2004 2017. When you get to Atlanta, what's the first versus being in the in the north? What's the first like? Oh, we're not. I'm not in the North anymore situation you, you hit. I don't know. Or food you tried. Well, I tried grits for the first time when I was in Cincinnati, actually. So I had oh. experienced that. But um, all the barbecue is really good there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean it, well, wow. Atlanta's sort of an international city, so it's not quite the South. But it totally is, and it's kind of not at the same time. Yeah. Um, it was the first time I was regularly hearing pretty deep Southern accents, which was cool. I really enjoyed that. That's where people started to notice I had an up north accent, you know. <laughs> hey, you know those those hard those hard A's and E's and O's, you know. Um, yeah, 
Oh, so they're, wait, you're not from here. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess in the weather. I mean, it was like Cincinnati's like four square seasons. Yeah, right. Atlanta is like hot. Three of them, three of them are winter, but yes, go ahead. Yes. Warm and then sort of rainy and ugh, for a right. little bit. Yeah. I think the weather was the number one thing. The weather and hearing all these different types of accents. Yeah. Similar, different, aside from being a grad student, but just in terms of either teaching plan style, things that you working with Stuart versus working with Jim. Well, Jim was percussion ensemble. Al was my lessons oh. teacher. So I studied with Al all four years. Well, it's interesting because Stu came from CCM too. Yeah. And he went to Oberlin before that where he studied with Mike Rosen. So this whole sort of connection. Um, so as far as like music and ideals, like Stu, there was a certainly familiarity. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of a CCM family thing. But then, but yeah, his teaching style is much different than Al's. I mean, Al's pretty, Al is a very unique uh, individual and and uh, teacher. So yeah, uh, Stu had a much different t- teaching style. And also I was a grad student then. So the expectation was that I kind of had a, my own artistic vision, you know what I mean? Sure. But yeah, I would, it was the same, you know, I would come in with stuff and yeah, I became a better percussionist, you know, did, had similar opportunities. Well, I mean, for me, my percussion experience in Atlanta was a lot more about um, stuff outside of school. Mm. But being there, you know, was pretty, pretty typical, you know, percussion. And the percussion ensemble music was, somewhat in the vein of like the type of stuff we played at CCM, but then also other things. But I just really, and, and largely because of Stuart at the beginning and because of Karen Hunt with Chicks with Sticks, I was able to kind of get in and start playing all over like pretty quickly. So yeah, it wasn't a huge, besides the, the culture of the music school was very different than CCM and like Georgia State and CCM for sure. Just because of, because of what? Because of the size um, it was much smaller. And of course it's not CCM, so it's not quite as, the players aren't quite as good as CCM, but that, yeah, it was just the the, the size of the school and the, and the culture of the city was so different. Yeah. Yeah, which is great. I mean, I, I loved it there in Atlanta. I mean, the traffic was hot trash, but um, the traffic is worse than Miami, no matter what people say. They're like, oh, Miami's so bad. I'm like, yeah, I've been there doing – it's not <laughs> nothing like Atlanta. I mean, there are elements of it, like certainly like rush hour, maybe there's six lanes, but Atlanta was like, oh, my God. I feel like it's probably still this way there now, but there was just such an openness for ideas. There's so many venues to play music. You could, you know, it's easy to form an ensemble, which I did and was part of them. And there's, yeah, there's so many places to play and like a lot of um, excitement and audience for various things. And there's always been a great, like weird music scene there. Mm. Um, you know, there's a venue called iDrum, which if you went to iDrum, you always knew either it was going to be weird or great or both. Okay. Yeah. So I did a lot of stuff at iDrum, either playing, and then eventually I joined the music committee for a while. And I did a lot of work at iDrum toward my end of my time there in Atlanta. Yeah, it was just great. It was just great. So many, so many things to do. Well, what was what is this the iDrum place? What made it weird? Oh, I mean, that's just, it's been around. It had been around forever, and it still is around. It's just in a different location. But it was a it's a combination of art gallery and like art space, and hmm. then also concerts and everything. Um. So, and it's spelled E-Y-E-D-R-U-M. And also there's like literary stuff. And yeah, I mean, there's always cool, like always great people um, booking shows and sort of this family. It's a place, there was a whole like noise fest that happened there. Um, 
Nice. Went to one time and that was really interesting and like, yeah, just weird as what I would call like you know, weird music. But you know, groups that really were just kind of out there, like improv stuff and like you know, you would go to a show where it was like be like a like sort of an avant gardeish metal band and something else, or just like. And so many cool different projects that people will put together. Like, let's say there's a literary thing and somebody would compose the music for the background or, or like I started something called the composer concert series. I did the concerts of that where I would have two different composers and they would each get like a half an hour and they would find their own performers and do the music. But it'd be like these little profile concerts and stuff where it was like, you could do stuff like that. Like at iDrum, no problem. Or like um, my friends and I, we formed a percussion group, like six of us, and we played some cool music. And like I kind of would sit in as a an extra for a couple of things. And you just like, hey, we're whatever percussion ensemble, and you could just book a show at iDrum. They're like, ah, oh, percussion stuff, like anything, anything goes. Awesome. Theater stuff. So it was it was that type of venue. And when I got to Milwaukee after Atlanta, I was like, okay, where's the mu- where's the weird music place? Where's the you know and there was only like one you know uh, so yeah i mean it's just like very very cool very cool and you said you were teaching at a you like you were teaching adjunct at that time as well mm-hmm. yeah um from 2009 until when i left in 2017 i taught percussion at reinhardt university which is a small liberal arts college north of atlanta um and yeah so i was there for eight years and um it was pretty small when I started out, but the numbers really grew. Um, so I taught lessons. I did the percussion ensemble and um, methods, percussion methods. And then I got I was able to teach more, so I taught world music for four of those years. And also briefly, I taught um, another class called FYS. Like I think it's first year experience or something, sort of like a oh, topic based. Yeah. Yep. Welcome to Reinhardt type of thing. Um, so yeah, at one at the height of my busyness there, I mean, holy cow, I was teaching like percussion methods, world music, percussion ensemble and lessons, you know, all at once, which is like very full time, you know, but when you're at, it's a private college, they'll turn a blind eye to how much you're teaching, you know, yeah. and at different, at different times I would have like, say maybe th- the beginning, I would have three people in the percussion studio. And at one point I had like 11 people in the percussion studio. So it was, it was. And percussion ensemble, except for the time when there was like 11 people, other people could play in percussion ensemble, like clarinetists or whatever. As long as they took methods and they were willing to like practice, they could be in percussion ensemble, Um, which is really fun. Yeah. It was a great experience. I loved it there. I loved it there. But they were never going to hire me full time. You know, they just weren't. um, Just just because or they 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 were fine with the arrangement as it was kind of thing or there was no push for them to make it anything more permanent? Yeah, I think, you know, um, probably financial reasons is the main thing because um, the, um, let's say if Reinhardt needed a new science, a full-time science position, well, they're definitely going to do that over a full-time music position. Sure. And they would have had to create, um, now I think, had I known better, had someone explained to me that at the time, at the time when I had a huge amount of people in my lesson studio, that I could have gone to HR and they could have given me benefits, and made me a lecturer. Yeah. You know, that would have been something, but I didn't know that. Sure. I didn't know that until someone else did it, you know, cause I had a bunch of students and they were like, Oh, I was like, Oh man. Uh, but nobody ever told me, I didn't know anything about that. Um, but yeah, so there was never, <clears throat> there was never a budget for that. And kind of what, uh, an experience that kind of led me to part of what led me to go, okay, I have to do something else with my life or take a new direction was that 
the last few years I was there, we, myself and Matt Anderson and, and the um, dean of the School of Music, Fred Tarrant, we put together um, the Reinhardt Contemporary Arts Festival. So oh. it was like art people and then there was like theater production of some kind and like a movie and, and like whatever. So the first the first one was like really not very well attended, but it was great. We had three guest composers. And then the second year was a little bigger um, and a little more well organized. And Or no, the first time it was two guest composers. The second time it was three. Anyway, the vice president of the university is very like into arts, you know, mm. um, wonderful Mark Roberts. So we were able to meet with him that second year, actually, at the vice president of the university and put it together, you know, and he was very supportive and he was able to get some money and everything. So he was great. And he would come to concerts, uh, hang out, hang out at the local bar in Canton type of thing. Um, and I was hanging out with other faculty and he came and sat right next to me and he said, you've done such wonderful things here. We would love to um, make a full time physician for you, but I don't know when. And that was when I went, this is never happening, you know. So, you know, I left and I didn't have a doctorate, you know. Um, and you didn't, I guess you, you didn't want to pursue that path or. No, I mean, the only place in this, in the state of Georgia that you can get a doctorate in percussion is um, Georgia, uh, University of Georgia. Yeah. That program there was so not, I mean, it's like orchestral based. Right. And I would have had to do a bunch of, it just not, not for me. And that would, yeah, that would just would not have been good, a good fit. And, and so, yeah. Uh, but that's the only place you could get a doctorate. And, you know, it's something, because along the way, it's something that I still had considered was, well, maybe we'll get a doctorate in profession somewhere else. But because I had started composing and that was really going somewhere, I made the crazy decision to go back to school for composition. And I'm not at this point willing to get a double doctorate. No, that's fine. <laughs> I'm never writing a dissertation again. Never. But, um, Yeah. So that was my, yeah, I decided to go back to school for composition instead of going on with percussion. Because of that, I just didn't, yeah, not that, not that it's not a great school. It is a great school. So how did you, how do you know about the composition program at Milwaukee? Kind of random. Um, So I applied a bunch of places for my master's in composition. Um, And there was sort of like a first round of applications and then a second round. Uh, and so I got interviews at a lot of different places, but no full, I wanted a full assistantship. So then I did a second round of applications that were um, uh, like rolling admissions type of places. Um, and then, so I, it was really, it was really random. I don't know if it was like a the, one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit that came and sat on my head or something, but I was literally just in my car and I thought, oh, what about Milwaukee? Like, yeah. I don't know what thought process brought me there, but I applied there, you know, UW-Milwaukee. So, and that was the place that gave me money. Of course. So I went there. I should. Yeah, I went there. So, yeah, it was quite random. And actually, it was kind of funny because I had sent them an email and, and applied and everything, but then they didn't, like, reply back right away. And so I thought, oh, maybe they just, you know, and then he was like, oh, we, yeah, please come and, you know. So, yeah, and that was an interesting experience because... First of all, going to school at 37 and then doing composition, very different. Yeah. And it was a, you know, I was kind of a weirdo composer because it's very like um, sort of electronic music, really out there stuff. Um, a huge, huge electronic music component because um, John Wellstead, who was my teacher in my second year, um, created the electronic music. Oh, boy. 
I don't know what it's called, but anyway, uh, it's a big program at UW Milwaukee that and he started that back in '82. Honestly, even though I knew I was going to go there and I, uh, I had gotten a full ride, and part of my assistantship was a, was in the percussion studio, I didn't know what I was getting myself into, you know. Yeah. So yeah, it was different. It was really different. Um, but I had a wonderful time there, and I learned so much, and I got to play. I got to play the percussion ensemble. I get to, and Alex Weir, that was his. So when I came in, that was his first year teaching percussion there. Mm. So, and he's, he's, it, but it was, I think um, maybe it was adjunct that first year and then he got a full-time position after that. So I was his first like graduate assistant. And so it was cool. Cause like we're kind of the same age and just coming in at the same time. And um, it was really great working with him. So yeah, it was something else. What, well, what makes for, either in terms of coursework or job situation, what, what, what is part of a typical, as you see it, kind of composition degree program? Mm. Well, I don't know what, t- what is typical for people, to be honest. But at Milwaukee, it was, um, I, it was funny because it was, it was 11 or 12 years in between when I had finished my master's in percussion and when I had started and so they wouldn't take any, they wouldn't take, they wouldn't take any of my classes like as a transfer because it had been too long. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Which, so I had to take like, you know, research again, research class again and, and stuff like that. And, and all the theory again and all the, you know, I mean, honestly, if I, if I had been able to transfer my stuff for my first master's degree, I could have done the program in like a year. Yeah. You know. Uh, because there's music history. So all that stuff I took against, so there was a lot of, but of course it was different teachers and different classes. So yeah, I mean, it was still, as far as composing stuff, it was, it was just taking lessons really yeah. was taking, lessons, taking composition lessons. And then there were some interesting uh, classes that I was able to take too. like, well, because of the electronic music program, I was able to take some uh, good sturdy classes in electronic music composition. And those were great. Really, really great. I wrote my one and only fixed media piece, which I'm very proud of. It's really good. Um, and, but, but anytime I've tried to do stuff with electronic music since then, it's just trash. Like, I don't know. I think I, <laughs> but I learned so much. It was great, you know, but that was the main thing. Yeah, I was taking lessons in, um, in those electronic music classes. That, that was what kind of really separated it from like a performance degree. Everything else was your standard history theory, blah, 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 gotcha. which is good. I learned, I learned a lot in those classes having, you know, taking them again, but yeah, I was taking them again, you know. Sorry, remind me where you went where for doctorate? Uh, oh, University my- of Miami in Florida. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and how are you aware of that composition? Yeah. So I said the first like summer thing I did outside of high school was, um, it was a Charlotte New Music Festival. Okay. Two weeks, you know, composer camp, but you go and, and they have, um, it's just great. I mean, um, you stay in, I forget which school it was at in Charlotte, but like you stay in the dorms there and everything. And um, they have like two, one or two guest composers and a few guest ensembles. So like um, it was a Bayo string quartet and then um, great noise ensemble. You were commissioned to write a piece for one or either of those. And then you get like two lessons with the different guest composers and everything. I didn't end up taking a lesson, but so it was like Mark Mellitz was the first week was a guest composer and like Mark had already like been my hero, but that was the first time I met him. Yeah. So it was like, it was almost like being starstruck. Like I was nervous. I was like dropping things. Like I was so, he was like a superstar to me. Um, now he's a dear friend and a superstar, but 
Nice. Yeah. So I got to take a lesson with him. And then um, the second week, the guest person was Lansing McCloskey. And so my, my roommate, so he's, he ended up being my teacher at Miami, but my okay. roommate, Dana Kaufman, who's an incredible composer, she's at UC Riverside. She does a bunch of opera stuff, but um, I, her and I were roommates and she was there to, you know, to do the, the, um, you know, composer camp as it were, but also to, you know, take, to be with Lansing before she, and she was about to go to do her doctorate at University of Miami. So that's how I met Lansing. And actually I was, um, I was his chauffeur while he was there because I had a car. So they asked me if I would drive him around. So yeah, I would pick him up from his, wherever he was staying and like every day. So I got almost every day I was able to be in the car with him for like a total of a half hour every day. So I spent time with him and with Dana and I just, I just loved Lansing, you know? Um, and actually Miami is one of the places I applied for my master's as well. Mm. Uh, but once again, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, an assistantship situation. So, but it, it, uh, it ended up being that for my doctorate. And so for my doctorate, I applied in like maybe six or seven places and Miami was the, was the one place where I got in, you know, but I also applied at some places. Like I, I thought at that time I need to get, my doctor at a really fancy school, you know, so I was applying at places like Cornell and Princeton and stuff like that, or places where they actually give you like a stipend and yeah. like you get like $30,000 or something like that. In addition to free, you know, free tuition as it were. But um, I was so happy. I mean, Miami is where I wanted to go anyway. So, you know, that was great. So I went to, to study with Lansing and, and do that until, until I'd gone to the Charlotte New Music Festival, I wasn't really aware of the Frost School of Music, to be honest, because I've been Midwestern-y and, like, Southern-y, and Florida, yeah. Florida is, like, can, in a lot of ways, be its own, like, little planet. Sure. Well, so, and Miami, yeah, in particular, is even different from the rest of the state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Miami was a magical adventure. It was great. It was really great. I got an outstanding education there, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Really, really good, rigorous, um, but just wonderful, te- wonderful teachers, wonderful classes, and the TA work that I got to do. You know, sometimes I was a TA for various things, so that's just like grading and attendance and stuff. But then a lot of times I was teaching the classes as well. Yeah, I mean, it was great. Very, like I said, very rigorous, really outstanding. I feel like I earned that doctorate. <laughs> I just go, this was like intense. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is this when the toy piano enters the picture for you? No, to, toy piano entered the picture when I was in Atlanta. Okay. Yeah. So that same summer, 2015, when I went to Charlotte, um, or a little before that, my friend Amy O'Dell, who was the guitar player in my band that I had in Atlanta, guitar. Yeah, guitar. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. just an incredible pianist altogether. She she commissioned myself and a few other composers to write pieces for her um, uh-huh. toy piano solos for a concert called find your inner child, but also to record a CD. It was all commissions. She, she gave me the idea to write a piece for two toy pianos, one in each hand. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, it's called nobility of homophones. Um, and she played the heck out of it. And, um, but that, that's how I first got excited. So then I went, um, to Charlotte. And when I got back, my roommate at the time had found me a toy piano at a garage sale. So uh-huh. then I wrote my own, you know, and at that time I got the crazy idea. I was like, Oh, what if I just wrote like little one minute pieces for my friends? Yeah. Things like that. So I started um, writing little one minute pieces. And by writing, I mean like I kind of, I set up a, 
little thing. So it's called Texture of Activity is the name of the book of the first 55 ones that I wrote, but um, where I'd have 60 minutes from when I sat down at the toy piano to when I uploaded a video of me playing it onto YouTube. So this wasn't like, right, right, right. This was like sort of com- composing and improvising at the same time. Sort yeah. of thing. So, cause it was like, you know, essentially 50 minutes cause I would need to like actually play it and record it and put it up on YouTube within that 60 minutes. So I did, I mean, I just, that was a project that took me through a lot, you know, there were 55 of them, a good Fibonacci number. And then I, uh, and all the titles are like inside jokes for the people <laughs> we're dedicated to. Yeah. And then I was like, whoo, I'm done with toy piano. But then like six months later, I started another one, this time called Playing the Changes, where I did the exact same thing, except there are 72 of them. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but with the texture activity, I, um, what I would do is I'd play them and then kind of over time, I would transcribe them by ear. So the whole entire text of, texture of activity is notated and it's a, a book that you can buy, but I give it to, for free for, to people. And I turned um, 10 of those into a book of vibraphone solos, actually. 10 short pieces for solo vibraphone. Um, and then the, the other 72, I have about like 20 of those um, transcribed. But so just, you know, 127 miniatures, that piece for Amy. And then um, in, in the middle of that, in the, um, I, I went to the, Amy and I went together to the first Florida International Toy Piano Festival, the inaugural. Okay. So, um, and she went playing nobility of homophones, but also she was like an artist there. So she played some other people's pieces. And then the next year, um, the so the director, Elizabeth A. Baker, she called me and asked me if I would be uh, the composer in residence for the second year. Yeah. So then I wrote a bunch of uh, pieces for like the guest performers there. So like there was, I wrote a quartet that was for toy pianos, um, like cello, violin, and mandolin mm. and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I've been like, woo, toy piano, you know, but it did start in Atlanta. Gotcha. So what was the focus of your diss then? Uh, so, it, so it was a piece and then I wrote about the piece. Okay. A double concerto for toy pianos and chamber orchestra. And then, so two players who have yeah. two toy pianos each. Uh-huh. But four different ones, four different, to- very specific toy pianos that have different timbres and different hammers and different, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, amplified chamber ensemble. And then, so I, and I wrote about the piece. So there's one chapter in there, that, but that's all about like toy pianos. A brief overview. You know? Sure. And then, and then I write, write about, you know, writing about your own music, or I should say for me, writing about my own music was like, oh, <laughs> writing the piece itself was like a joy, as it always is for me. But yeah. writing about it was like, Ooh. <laughs> it's intense, you know. And then also part of the dissertation. So like, yeah, OK, a little intro. But then um, so writing the piece, it's like a whole I wrote the piece. What about the piece? But also I created the Toy Piano Chamber Music Database. And that was a huge part of the dissertation where I um, I looked everywhere and to everyone and created the first and only, uh, not exhaustive, but pretty damn close to, um, uh, yeah, library or, uh, yeah, database of uh, chamber music that has toy piano in it and also some large ensemble pieces. And before that, there there is the Toy Piano Library, which is online. And that's but that's it's great. It's a great resource. It's um, but it's chamber music and solo music. And so actually, I used I used that data database as a huge starting point 
for the Toy Piano Chamber Music database. So I'm very thankful for that as a resource. Um, so that is available on my website if anybody really wants to find any sort of chamber music that has toy piano in it. Okay. A lot of pieces. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of pieces. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's been, and I, you know, I've collected a number of the ones that you see here are ones that actually I decided to, that I wanted to use for the double concerto. Mm. Because when you have all the range together of all those instruments and the different timbres, it's really quite an experience. I've, I've never even uh, tried to really tried to get an ensemble to play it yet, but that, that is a goal of mine is to have a premiere and get it, get the piece out there. But I've just been kind of busy with finishing my dissertation and then moving to a city, a new city for a job and everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Can you, can we hear each of the piano? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, let me uh, unplug. I think maybe if I just bring you over. Okay. I know this is a podcast, so but you know I could send pictures. It's, a, it's an audio podcast, so you'll we'll yeah. just have to... yeah. Uh, but this is the so. Let me know if you can hear. Um... Oh yeah. You can hear that. Okay. Yep. So this is, this is a Schoenhut thirty key. Um, so the range is C three. So this the C that's in the um, the second line of the or the second space of the bass clef, all yep. the way to F something or other. I I used to have these all memorized, of course, but. Um, yeah, so it's a low C. And this one's got the wildest overtones. <laughs> Maybe I'll play the same thing on every one. So that's a little 7-8 thing. Um, this one is a Kawhi, and it's unique in that... So toy pianos in general, the keys are the same width as a real piano, uh-huh. but they're shorter. Yeah, okay, gotcha. But this one is different. So, so let me go back real quick. I don't want to bore people too much, but plastic hammers that hit steel rods. That's, that's the first one. Okay. That's, this one, Kawhi, yep. um, is wooden hammers that hit aluminum tubes. Okay. To me, this instrument sounds like a combination of a xylophone and a, and a, um, and a glockenspiel. Okay. This is, this is high. So that's the lowest one, this low C, C3. The highest one, this one is C7. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, I wish I could do some had some Mozart memorized. Wow. Okay. Awesome. That was a Kawhi. Yep. And then here, this one I just got over Christmas vacation. Um, this is a Schoenhut thirty-seven key, but it's an old one. It's a vintage. Okay. Yeah. So these are called. Um, Oh, this shape that looks like a piano, right? They actually look like a baby grand. So that's a baby grand style as yeah. a whole. This is what is called an upright. Right. This one, yeah. this one is different. I'll show you this one in a sec. This one is called an upright because it's tall. Yeah. And if you're a little three-year-old, you sit on a stool and there you go. Yeah. Um, likewise with this one, there's a stool. This one you have to sit on a table. So this one is the, oh, this one is the exact same range as a vibraphone. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Nice. So this is found at an antique store, like just in Wisconsin. Nice. Yeah. 
Okay, this one now, this is a called tabletop because it sits at the table, this small one underneath. That's a JMAR, okay? Oh, by the way, this show note is from the 90s. This Kawhi is new. Yeah. This show note is probably from the 70s or 80s. Not sure. This JMAR is from anywhere from the 50s to the 70s. Um, okay. Um, and this one is exactly the same range as the show note except for an octave up. Okay. So this is C4. Yep. Um, so I'll play low. Oh, the keys stick on this one. Now I'll play that up an octave. And then I have three more. <laughs> uh, this one is not mine. This one is a, uh, it, it's, it's, and a weird Neiman Marcus made toy pianos for a while. Ah, yeah. And so this belongs to Lisa Furzig, who's a, um, uh, she teaches like music history and stuff here. And she said, Oh, I have this toy piano that I found on the side of the road. And it was so dirty and gross and all the keys were stuck. It was nasty. So the other day ago, I fixed it up. I totally re-screwed everything, totally cleaned it. Nice. So this is not mine. This is hers, but it's the same range as that first Joan Hunt. Also, you can open the lid, and when you open, the, when you take the lid off of any of these uh, baby grand styles, yeah. um, they do sound significantly different. Uh, gotcha. They're much louder. Now, this one is a percussion interest. This next one, this is a show nut that is well over a hundred years old. Okay. Oh yeah! Wow, look at that design. John Cage wrote, as far as we know, the very first toy piano solo. It's called Sweet for Toy Piano. Okay. This is the type of instrument he would have played on. Mm. It may have been this very, you know, type of instrument. Where do you see the black keys are painted on? Yeah, I was going to say they're all and they're they're not raised. No, nope, they're not raised. They're painted on. So it's it's a diatonic instrument. It's just white keys. Okay, gotcha. And so is um, so is sweet for toy piano. I gotcha. Okay. Now, now this. Oh, I forgot to tell you, those other two were plastic hammers on metal tines, including this one. This one is wood hammers on um, steel. They're almost like little glockenspiel bars. You probably can't see, but it's literally like a, it's like a, it's like a baby's glockenspiel in here. Got it. Oh yeah. Yep. And in fact, these may be metal hammers and not wood. I can't, I can't see the hammers at all. Um, this is an old instrument, real old. And this last one, this last one is a Michelson from France. This one is probably from the 50s. This may be a knockoff, to be honest. I don't know. But this one is um, wooden hammers on, on steel tines. Gotcha. And I love the sound of this one. Oh, let's see if I can. Oh, I'm just missing the E key. Yeah. Nice. Now, here's another fun thing about this one. This is called a bread box style. Uh-huh. Because the keys, the keyboard folds up. Oh. It's a bread box. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that. And then you just pull it back out carefully. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. yeah. There we go. That was great. This is another JMR. This one I'm actually going to be... 
hush hush, but I'm gonna I'm donating this because I already have another one. I'm donating this to the Grand Valley State University New Music Ensemble. Awesome. So that they have their own toy piano. Sweet. So I finish out with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. First question, um, and you can kind of pick which field or how you want to answer this, um, but the issue in either composition or composition education or theory, et cetera, or percussion education performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. Oh, what really chaps my ass, huh? <laughs> I, you know what? I should phrase it that way. That would be good. <laughs> There's a, um, a a podcast that I like to listen to. It's called A Little Bit Culty. And um, uh, we have two things on there that just I love. Number one is called What Shaps Your Ass. And number two is called Word Salad. Word Salad. Yeah, yeah. You read something from some cult member that just makes no sense. Or a yeah. cult leader. And Yeah, but they ask, like, what really chaps your ass about this cult that you were in? But anyway, this is changing, I'm sure. But I really think uh, what, what, a, what a disservice it is to – to have to teach students how to play their instruments, how to compose, and all this wonderful music stuff, and not give them the life skills that they need to live a, a life in music. You know, doing your taxes, uh, 1099s, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, how do you get gigs? How do you um, how do you survive? Is it okay to have multiple jobs? You know. Um, there's just so many things like that that are needed to, to pursue a career in music that are just not part of the university system. Now, they are more now. I know that some schools really have great stuff. But for a lot of places, I think they don't. They just go, all right, here's how you, here's how you become good at X, Y, and Z. But they don't tell you any of the practical skills necessary for life in music. And that's what jabs my ass. Yeah. <laughs> and that can be something that I should take part in changing, so... Yeah, that's something I'm constantly working on with. I teach a career development class. Oh, career and, development. There you go. Look at you. Uh, uh, so yeah, because we have an arts entrepreneurship certificate here at Mizzou. Oh, and, yeah, so um, you know, the schools are taking care of business. That's great. Well, it's it's good. I mean, there's there's ways though that I'm like even I've taught it a few times now, and I'm and I'm, there, I'm still like okay, that needs to be better. And there's always ways I'm just thinking like. I needed like this needs to improve or they need this experience, but I definitely, it's definitely something that yes, when I was, when we were in school, like not even brought up or, or, you know, it's, it's one where I think there's a, there's definitely a path where if you're in music ed, it's like, it's very clear, like what the plan for that is. Yeah. But if you're not, <laughs> then it's less clear. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Or if you're in a performance degree where you're let's let's say you're you're very try, you're very much trying to get a orchestral gig or some type of full-time playing gig. Uh-huh. Like there's a there's a certain like very clear path on on that one. Yes. And yeah. those are the paths that are talked about and taught but um are potentially increasingly becoming less and less um available to just go on that yeah. As a composer or as a performer. Uh, next question, take this wherever you want to go. And again, thinking of all the the realms that you're that you participate in, 
you know, navigating the percussion world or the composition world or the theory world as a woman? It did not, it did not really occur to me that being a woman in these fields, which are still very male dominated, all of them, that it was a, a thing or anything special. Early on, even um, nobody, I was lucky nobody treated me differently as a percussionist. So I was playing in church or, you know, uh, Lawrence Percussion Ensemble, high school, college, none of that. And in fact, when I had my own band, Clipper Jones Ensemble, I was a drummer, composer, band leader, blah, blah, blah. It never occurred to me that it was something special that I'm a woman and I'm doing this stuff. Even playing in Chicks with Six Percussion Group, it was just cool, you know, five, five women played it, you know. It wasn't... Um, I don't know. So when it started to become clear to me was it kind of became more of a thing to really highlight women. All right. That was the first step before we started highlighting people of color. First, we started highlighting women, right? Especially white women, but women. Um, And I realized that as uh, the director of the percussion ensemble at Reinhardt, that I had not programmed a single piece by a woman written by a woman. And I was like, oh, my God, like, <laughs> I'm part of the problem. Or I hadn't even thought of it. So yeah. then I did the ding dong thing, which is like, hey, I want to do a concert of all women composers. I put it up on Facebook and like I got a bunch of responses. And, and I failed to say like, hey, we're uh, like a. Uh, how do I say like not super high level percussion because it's a tiny liberal arts college. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yes. this isn't like. Yeah, this isn't... We don't have all the instruments. <laughs> we don't even have... Yeah, we don't even have a five-octave right now. But, right. you know, and that was overwhelming. So the first piece, I think, that I, I... I One concert, I had two women composers. A piece of mine, my very first percussion ensemble piece called Power Walking Music. And then um, a piece by Joanna Beyer. Mm. Right. And I didn't know about her. I mean, percussion education. I, she was, like, totally in with, like, the Lou Harrison and the John Cage and stuff. And I never learned about her. Yeah. You know? So, um, and I had a lot of internalized misogyny myself because I remember an Al Adi, my teacher at, at, uh, at CCM, he called me out on it a couple of times. Like I was just a dumb girl from Wisconsin. Like I didn't know stuff. Do you know what I mean? So I had all those internalized, you know, I remember one time it was at PASIC, my first PASIC and I was near Al for this concert and it was all these sort of older women playing like ionization or something like that, which is really cool. But like I said some dumb comment about something and he really chewed me out. You know, he really, really chewed me out. And then he chewed me out another time for some other thing that I did. I didn't even know I was being a jerk to other women. I mean, I just didn't know. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so I know that there are things in this world that I have, even in music, that I have been treated differently. I've been uh, dismissed. I've been ignored. I know that that's the case. Um, I can't super duper point any of them out yeah i just know that's what happens yeah so and i'm white lady you know but then you know when maybe 10 years ago it's like oh women composers so i have received and especially earlier on a number of um opportunities started popping up for me you know the harford women's music festival and all these different things that were percussionists in particular were coming to me and being like oh she has boobs let's ask her to write a piece you know and um, and I know this is probably not, but there were a few people that I know they didn't listen to my music, mm. and then they're trying to commission me. But then other people really did. Like I like your music, okay, then I'm gonna commission you. Um, so personally, I I did 
sort of benefit, I guess, from being a woman for a while. There was like a lot of push for that. And I think people embraced it, you know, um, which is great, which is really, really great. So um, I'm happy for that. And, you know, uh, not to get too deep into things, but I, I almost wonder, like, what is that? You know, so, OK, more people commissioned me to write that were like, we're looking for women things from women. Women, women, you know, and it's like, OK, <laughs> um, those things that I received from that, did those, were those extra opportunities for me just because I'm a woman or were those the type of things that dudes would get and now I'm just on the same playing field? You know what I mean? Like, and that I, I maybe wouldn't have gotten, I don't know. I don't know. Because percussion has never treated me poorly as a woman, as far as I know. I really don't think so. I've never, you know... In all my time teaching in a percussion studio, right? Or nobody ever was like, ew, a woman or nothing like that, you know? And composition is a little more hairy, you know? There is more nitty picky. And, 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 and strangely, in composition, I think the way that you look and present yourself is more of a thing than as a performer, although that's a thing too, you know? Like, you know, being a, a fat white lady, middle aged lady is not uh, the best look right now, you know? <laughs> If I was like real pretty or something, I might be I might have a little more opportunities, but whatever, you know, people can eat it, you know. But um overall, I think I have been especially coming into composition later in life, meaning I didn't start writing music till I was in my early 30s. Saying that, okay. I have been exceptionally um lucky that I have not been harassed um sexually. I haven't received any of that type of um I don't think I've deliberately been like excluded or some of the just some of the and I've had wonderful teachers just wonderful who never made me feel anything other than a composer a musician none of that stuff and so many women have had horrible experiences with teachers and just you know oh and just getting taken out to dinner for whatever. And then the guy's hitting on her, just, you know, things like just terrible things. I've had none of that. And so I feel very lucky. I think that's just, you know, so, but I'm not here to speak for other people. That's not been that bad for me. It's been, it's been a wonderful experience, you know? And for instance, like I keep saying it, but having gotten to play in Chicks with Sticks was one of the most informative or like, anyway, it was uh, really good for my growth as a person and as a musician. That was a really special experience. All right, uh, getting to other questions on the more fun side. Anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? I think one time, there's an Instagram post that still exists. Uh, Somebody took a picture of me. I'm standing somewhere and I'm making sort of sort of gesture. Yeah. Apparently it's a very teacherly gesture that I did at Reinhardt. So some of my former students started like quoting me on Instagram, like in the comments. Mm. And one of the one of the comments was deliberately from percussion methods class because you know those drum pads that are like the um the black ones that sit on the head and they have like the raised middle and they're super oh high. yeah yeah yep grew up with that so I had a couple of those for people yeah. who were who were naughty and didn't bring their drum pad so yeah. I went out and really say who wants the assy drum pad <laughs> and people were commenting stuff like that. But I've never seen somebody do an impersonation in person, which I would love if they did, but I haven't. Yeah. We'll, have to, we'll have to get on that. Yeah, yeah, um, All right. What is the most impractical item of clothing you own? Impractical item of clothing? Oh, I'm so practical. 
Oh no. Oh, I don't have anything impractical. I'm the most practical non-glamorous. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I'm sorry. I got nothing. Nothing. All right. That's fine. Uh, what is your biggest kitchen mess up? Oh, well, recently. Um, okay. So a n- number of things happened. I, uh, it was the middle of finals week. I got a really bad cold that like, it was like a Wednesday night. So this was like two weeks ago. I was in the kitchen. I was trying to open a can of peaches with this crappy can opener that I got. Uh-huh. I moved it. I sold all my kitchen stuff. And so I just had this crappy like Dollar Tree can opener. There was an accident. I, uh, you probably can't see it, but I significantly sliced my hand right here by the thumb on the, on the can opener, and I had to get stitches. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, unfortunate can opener incident, followed by two nights later, and let me just, so people don't think I'm a ding-dong, let me remind everybody that I had a bad cold and my brain wasn't working. I was I was boiling some water for macaroni and cheese, and it's a pot where it's like a glass lid. Took the glass lid off, yeah, yeah. put it yep. in the sink, and then a few seconds later, I turned on the cold water right on the glass thing, and it, it shattered. The glass oh. lid shattered and went all over the kitchen. Oh, my gosh. I still see myself where my cat were not sliced or hurt in any way, unlike the can opener incident. Um, as far as cooking stuff, like I would just say um, my rule in life is that I never leave the kitchen when I'm boiling water because I have many times completely boiled the water down and nothing, like left the room and forgot it was on. Oh my gosh. Started like a smoky, smelly mess. Yeah, yeah. Can we stay in the kitchen. <laughs> Anything is on the stove. I do yeah. not. Yeah. Fair enough. Now on the on the other side, do you have a uh cooking you have a specialty or a special dish? Oh, um there's only about three things I can make really well. That's popcorn on the stove. Mm-hmm. Uh my uncle Jimmy's meatballs. Nice. And um, which are uh, basically uh, you cook them in a combination of a big jar of grape jelly, like the sugary, crappy grape jelly, oh. lemon juice, and uh, hot sauce. Put those nice. together and cook the meatballs in that. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah. And then stick them in the crock pot when they're like almost fully cooked so they can like, you know, simmer and stuff. That's good for if you're you're at home in Wisco, you're playing cribbage. Yeah, yeah. Cards. <laughs> cribbage. Having a having a blatz or a schlitz, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Get on a cookie meatball. And then uh what's the other thing I can make really well? Gluten-free pancakes, homemade gluten-free pancakes. Hmm. Yep. I'm not much of a chef. Mm-hmm. That's I right. Love, I'm a crockpot queen. I do love my crockpot. Oh yeah. yeah. So great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great. The best thing, at least when 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 I've used it, is just like you just look around. You're like, I have to use that and that and that that, and I'm just gonna put his put this in at 10 a.m. and let it forget it. <laughs> you got taters, veg, and meat. You are ready to go. You got a good soup. Yeah, or stew. Yep, yeah, yep. very great. What's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? Recently. I went to the theaters and I saw Maestro. Oh, it's so good. It was so good. Now, I did not read anything on the internet before or after. So I know people are complaining about certain things. I don't know what they're complaining about. It was amazing. 
was so awesome. great. in the theaters too, you know, right? Like, yeah. holy cow. And Bradley Cooper, like, I mean, it's such a, it was a very emotional experience for me watching the movie because Leonard Bernstein, it was like going to see Jesus or something, you know, he's like such a, uh, I, I've read all his biographies like way back when I was at CCM and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, but that scene where he conducts the uh, like end 15 minutes or so of Mahler's second symphony, just the resurrection. I mean, it's like one of the most glorious sections of music mm-hmm. ever in the world, right? Yeah. yeah. So he's like, doing that. Uh, oh, he's doing exactly. Yeah. yeah. He's, just, yeah. he's doing Leonard Bernstein, but and I haven't seen Lenny conduct that on, on like video or anything, but just a few weeks before that in orchestration class, we had gone over that very section of Mahler's second symphony in oh. class, you know, so there's these little things that like, so what I did is for myself is I, as I kind of, um, you know, went on Google translate and translate all his little notes that are in German, you know, Mahler's notes that are German, everything. So that I could know exactly all the little stuff he was saying and there are a few notes to the conductor that are very specific things to do. Mm. And Bradley Cooper did those things in the, his conducting in, in the, those little things that nobody would know unless you literally like went in there and you're, or unless your conductor has done it. I mean, I was like, I was just shocked. I mean, it was so good. Well, great movie. Um, I think the worst movie I've ever seen is mission impossible Two. <sighs> Oh God! I wonder, John Woo. Maybe I mean, still so it's Tom Cruise, of course. But yeah, yeah. So my ex-husband is a percussionist. Okay. Yeah, Isaac Anderson, a wonderful person. Uh, no, no harm, no foul. But we so and a big chunk. I mean, I got married and divorced when I was in Atlanta. The point is, he and I were the ones who watched Mission Impossible Two together, and we were both so appalled at how just dumb. Oh, I don't, I don't, I can't even, I need to watch it again to see exactly why it was so terrible, but mm. Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> gotcha. This is just a memory. It's a very specific it's, memory. It's just a, yep, just a sense memory. Yep. Now, okay, so back to Mahler 2. Have you seen the conducting video where the person has spliced together, like, um, like no emotion, starting with Boulez to like, I can't remember the dude Vasquez or something like that, where the like, it goes from like the tiniest conducting gestures for the end of Mahler two to the most ridiculous. Have you seen this video? I don't know. I haven't seen it. It's, it's tremendous. I'll send it to you because I show it. I'll sh- I show it in every class. I can, I, that it seems relevant in because it's just, it's so much fun to watch the, how everyone composes. And uh, Bernstein is one of them. He's like, he's kind of in the middle end. Uh, but he does like the the um, yeah the, the hug and then the back yeah and then the yeah, yeah. it's the great Rocky. yeah <laughs> yes the Rocky <laughs> all right uh, what's a favorite book oh my gosh so many I have all my I books. saw you have I saw you when you moved oh, your camera you have Dune over there oh I got all the Dunes yeah I had those over the you know that first COVID Christmas like. Mm-hmm. That was just like, so COVID was in March and then that Christmas, like, yep. whatever holiday, but you know, that winter time. Um, so I read all six of those during that time. Okay. Wow. Uh, what's my favorite? Well, here's a few. Here's one that I like. I'm just pulling it off the shelf. Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls. 
Oh yeah, I, I read that a long time ago. Yeah, it's a it's a movie. I haven't seen the movie. I'm not going to, but the book is wow. The book is really great. What that's about? Because what was she in like t- Kentucky or West Virginia or something like that? Is that what the? Yeah, she was somewhere kind of rural. Well, well, they moved all over because both her parents were like very mentally ill, right? Yeah, and they sort of moved all over the place wherever her dad could get work and everything. So, but I think it was all like around in Appalachia kind of thing. Yeah. That fascinating book. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. Do you have a sports fandom? No, I have a. Um, I don't really. I don't watch like professional sports really, unless it's like on and I'm somewhere. However, I do have a sort of a Wisconsin affection for the Green Bay Packers. Oh sure, yeah. But my my grandpa um, auditioned for the Packers back when they were called the Papermakers. Um, and like him and many other people, they got drafted for World War II. Yeah. And when he came back, he didn't, you know, redo that. But but our family, uh, my my mom's side of the family, does have season tickets to the Packers. Those are those are coveted. Never been to a game. Been to a game. Yeah. And you've never been? Never been to a game. I got I got I forgot who has them right now. I don't know if it's my cousin, but I got to go to one. Yeah. But I mean, it's the Packers. They're a cool team, and you know they're owned by the city of Green Bay, and yeah. you know. Just part of the part of the family, you know, is Packers and stuff. So yeah. Well, it'd be interesting if you decide you want to go go get like a you want to just go to a game, so which you would go to something in September, or do you want like a Packers experience and go to a game in December? You know. Oh, geez, I don't know. You know, anything I go to any game. Gotcha. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, I'd love to have the experience with the tailgating and everything. Oh yeah. Nice. All right. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Oh boy. I'd love to go to the Netherlands. Mm. Just, I have friends there and it just seems like a really, I mean, Europe in general, they have all these history. Yeah. A lot of our family history is, is from the Netherlands and from like Bavaria and stuff. So it would be kind of cool to like see cemeteries and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's the first place I would like to go visit. Um, wow. I don't know. I've hardly been out of the USA, you know, I've been to Canada several times and I went to Spain for five weeks one time. That's it. I've been nowhere else. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what is the origin of your last name? That's German. Okay. Yeah. Do you have a go-to karaoke song? No. Oh, uh, yes. It's a uh, time after time by Cindy Lauper. Yeah. That's a good one. And I could be the, I will be waiting, you know, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I could be like the main, uh, but I'm, I'm like so terrible with karaoke. And can I tell you one karaoke story that was really Please. mortifying? This yeah. is my first karaoke, and I have only done karaoke like four times, but if mm-hmm. I'm going to do, it's going to be time after time by Cindy Lauper. But this was, so it was, it was um, held in this bar called like Sister Louisa's. This is in Atlanta mm-hmm. and upstairs. And it used to be a church. And so they have all these like pictures of Jesus on the walls and stuff, but they like write funny things on it, you know? Um, anyway, and then upstairs we had actual pews and like ping pong tables and stuff, but on like, let's say Tuesday nights or whatever, it would be karaoke and they'd have a live organist. Mm. And so I was like, maybe I had just enough to drink that I decided to do it. And I'm looking in the book and I didn't know anything except moon river. Okay. So I went up there and decided, and, and if you want, you could put on a choir gown, like a, yeah. yeah. 
The Blue and Quaragon, they also had sunglasses, which made me feel more safe wearing the sunglasses. <laughs> you know, less emotionally vulnerable, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was something wrong with, like, the sound system that night. And uh, I don't know exactly what happened, but here I am, like, listening. So he starts to play the organ. I couldn't hear him for whatever reason. I think maybe the speakers went out, so it was, or I don't know what happened. But anyway, so I'm singing Moon River, desperately trying to stay with this guy, and he's playing it real slow. And he's just giving me the stink eye. I mean, just like, like, you know. Do you know this song? <laughs> yeah, just look. And it was terrible. It was all terrible. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And then so, yeah. Or, or um, uh, if they have it, which I almost never do, a Bullet the Blue Sky by U2. I'll sing that. Oh, that that's a deep cut. It's a great tune. You can hardly ever find it, but yeah. Yeah. Nice. When you go, next question, when you go back to Wisconsin to visit family, is there a place that you have to eat to feel like you've gotten the Wisconsin experience? Yes, but it closed recently. Oh, no. It closed during COVID. It's called the Golden Basket. Okay. I think on Richmond. And um, it's a Greek restaurant. Mm. Sort of a greasy spoon type of place, breakfast. And the best prices. And um, the Kiefer Cousins, we would just go, like anytime anybody was around, we would go. But we called it the Golden Casket. Um, Instead of the Golden Basket. (laughs) Why? Why? Oh, the golden casket. I don't know. There's no reason. The food is so good. Because you know? <laughs> it was so good, it would kill you? Like that kind of thing? Oh, or? I don't know. Just the golden casket. And that's just what you called it. And oh, that makes me really sad, you know, because like, oh, if I, you know, we would have gone. My cousins and I would have gotten together to the golden caskets closed. So we didn't even get together over this last break. I got to change that. Next year, um, we'll have to find somewhere new. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Last couple, strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? I was playing with my band, Clipper Jones Ensemble, at the Star Bar in Atlanta. And uh, it was like in between songs. So it was like, depending on where we were set, set up, but like it was usually like, if you're sitting from the drummer perspective, usually it would be like bass on my left and the guitar next to him or bass on my left and guitar on my right, depending the guitar player. He brought a banana and he, he opened the banana and put it on my seat while I was standing up and talking. So when I sat back down, I sat on this banana and it, you cannot get banana out of your pants. It's impossible to get out of stuff. But secondly, just that feeling of like sitting down in this squashy. Oh, I know it was so, gross and funny i was like well i just sat on a banana and it does not come out of your pants like i don't know what it is about bananas yeah anyway so i couldn't get it off i just had this nasty stuff on my butt for the rest of the show it's a great practical joke but uh it's funny until it's you just keep looking at the pants like i guess guess we're done you ever want to get somebody or even better, like have a banana, but like half peel it, you know, so it squirts out. <laughs> right. That's see, that's what I originally thought it was going to, with how I originally thought no, he it just was put a out. naked banana on the freaking seat. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's what good friends do, I guess. Yeah. That's what friends are for. All right. Last question, Olivia. What one piece of art could be mu- music, movies, 
books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? Ooh. Well, okay. This may not be the most deepest thing, but this is what comes to mind. So I've been a fan of like uh, natural history and nature documentaries for a long time. I discovered, yeah. I discovered uh, David Attenborough um, and his, you know, with the, with the, uh, the trials of life. So I found yeah. a bunch of the videos of the trials of life on VHS at a thrift store. So this was like 15 years ago. So I've just loved all this stuff ever since then. The newest series is called, uh, it's actually Planet Earth 3. Mm. On Amazon Prime, maybe other places too. But that is just like amazing, really amazing. And sometimes it's hard to watch these more recent nature documentaries because it's like everything's dying. But in this one, it's um, there's a little bit of that. But the last, the last one, um, well, so it's like the last two uh, episodes. It's uh, heroes, and then like the making of. And the yeah. hero one, it's all about people who are doing incredible things to like save animals and save habitats and stuff like that. And it's super inspiring. So instead of being like negative, like we're all doomed, that's like really positive. Um, and that was extremely moving for me. So, um, and the, I mean, and the, I mean, the, how the, the level that they're able to get you of videoing animals and, and just, it's like, holy cow. And then you learn how they do it in the making of, but it's just incredible. So I highly recommend anybody watch Planet Earth 3, all of them, all the episodes. Awesome. I, I've, I think I've seen the first ver, the first one of those, the Planet Earth 1 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And oh, the original Planet Earth, the 2006? It, yeah, oh, something. Yeah, I mean, it was, that's still the best. That's still the like, well, best. <laughs> and what's, what's wild, I'm sure this, this is part of – this has to be part of every nature document if they do a making of – is like they have to be there for forever to get that footage. Like it's not – you don't just show up, shoot some stuff, and then it's there. It's like you have to be over there for months. months. Have, I mean it's insane. Yeah, those people are nuts. I mean going out to Antarctica to see like penguins and just living in penguin poop for like a long – you know, like months or like – this one that really was nuts in, in Planet Earth 3, it's a, this cave that maybe was discovered only like 20 years ago. It's mm-hmm. in um, – where is it? Oh my God. Vietnam. Okay. And it's the largest like cave system in the world so far. Mm. And okay. well, first of all, that's like the cool, that's a really cool episode. And I forget which one it's in about the, Oh, it might be extremes maybe. Anyway. Um, it's just, Holy cow. And it's huge. And, and all these different sections and like stuff that is, you know, of course caves, crazy ass creatures, you know, yeah. that don't exist anywhere else, you know, but there's, uh, um, in the making of, they show like what they had to do to, and like very specialized people. And like the, the, um, I mean, the camera people are usually like in good shape anyway, because they have to go, but like they had to like do all this extra training to get down into the cave and to be down there in the dark where you can't just get out. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. and they had like a whole crew of people like to make food and everything because, I mean, just this whole thing. It was it was pretty pretty amazing. If I had a different body and I didn't have bad back problems, like maybe if I would have ended up doing that, I would have loved that. You know, <laughs> being like a, a videographer for for nature, that would be a great great thing. All right, Olivia, we are done. Woo! Two and a half hours. 
Just yeah, just under yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Oh, thank you. What a wonderful. This is great. I'm so excited. It's been a ball. I love the podcast. I listen to probably five or six different ones. Jennifer Jolly, you know Raina. Yeah. Um, Caleb, Caleb Pickering, you know he's the head of the composition yeah. committee for PAS. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great it's a great podcast. I'm really oh. happy to be on it. Oh, thank you so much. What a blast having Olivia on the show. I wish her all the best success at GVSU and where that may take her. With her toy pianos and all of her commissions, and with the work she's done in the PAS Diversity Alliance. I hope our paths cross soon. Thanks again, Olivia. This week's rave is the 2023 film Somewhere in Queens, starring Laurie Metcalf, Jacob Ward, and Sadie Stanley, among many others, and written, directed, and starring Ray Romano, now showing on Hulu and other streaming services. The plot is as follows. Ray Romano is husband to Lori Metcalf, working at his father-in-law's construction company, and has a son, played by Jacob Ward, who is a solid high school basketball player, considering playing college ball. Throughout the movie, he is dating Sadie Stanley, a fellow classmate at his high school, and another working-class personality. This is Ray Romano's feature film debut and writing debut, alongside Mark Stegman, and is based somewhat on his life. While Romano grew up in Queens, New York, and is quite familiar with life there, he brought up his kids in California, which is where his son was a talented high school basketball player. In interviews, Romano discussed some of the backstory for the film, along with the challenge of finding an actor who can actually play basketball. This is apparently much harder to find in the acting world than one would think. In stepped Jacob Ward, a young actor also making his feature film debut, who did a good job of not only looking the part of a basketball player, but also playing up the working class aspect of his character solidly. Also really good was Sadie Stanley, another young actor making her feature film debut and navigating the strongly Italian-American world as the outsider girlfriend and more worldly personality. Lori Metcalf is just one of the best actors alive and has been so for a long time. So she's great as Ray's wife and Jacob's mother. And Ray Romano is really good in dramatic roles. A reminder that he was also great in a wonderful movie from a few years back called The Big Sick. If you haven't seen that film, also a fantastic movie to watch. This movie felt personal to me specifically, though. I grew up in an Italian New York household though I am Slovak on my mom's side, but recognized so much from this film, even beyond the sports items. The movie contains an enormous amount of real moments that come from the large interactions with Romano's family in the movie. Large and loud family dinners, celebratory parties and dances for anniversaries, weddings, and birthdays, the New York accents on everyone. It was just really well done and felt very truthful to me. And while it is, generally speaking, a drama, it has a lot of laugh-out-loud moments, particularly at the end. Literally, the last line of the entire film was great. If you haven't seen it, check out Somewhere in Queens. And even if you're not from New York, or Italian, or a straight white man, I think you'll enjoy. And that's our show. 
Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then. <laughs>